If you are joining us this morning on the live stream, uh, before I say anything else, I just want to say we miss you. You are loved, and um, we long to see you again soon. Let's all uh, go to the Lord together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, even young lions may suffer hunger, but those who seek you lack no good thing, because you, O God, provide. So Lord, um, as we approach your word uh, this morning, would you allow us, would you grant that we might taste and see your goodness to us this morning? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, look at the Lord's word together. Genesis chapter 22 is our text this morning. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife And so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from, Abraham, uh, from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. 
because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now the first time that I experienced problems with my vision, I was in college. Um, I was doing a lot of reading and very little sleeping because, you know, college. Um, I found <clears throat> over time uh, what was happening was I would be reading and I'd be focusing for minutes on end, hours on end on the text in front of me and uh, what would happen um, is I would, I would get to the point where my vision would sort of get out of whack. Uh, you know, my focus on these words, all of a sudden I'd be reading, 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 looking at the text and all of a sudden, boom, and I, you know, I'd lose, like my eyes would lose focus. I couldn't maintain focus to the point where um, I actually found it easier at times to just close one eye and read with one eye um, to avoid this sort of wackiness uh, happening. And, um, and I said to myself, I said, self, that's probably not a good long-term solution. So I went to see an eye doctor. Um, and what the eye doctor explained to me was I was doing a few things that were causing problems for my vision, all right? And I'm not an eye expert at all, uh, but I'll try and explain to you a little bit of what was happening. Um, it seems that the muscles that control the focus of uh, both of my eyes, um, they were fatigued over long periods of time trying to focus on reading. And uh, after periods of uh, long, intense focus, um, one or both of those muscles would just start spasming, um, throwing my vision out of focus. And uh, so to fix it, there were a few things I needed to do. First one, duh, I needed to get some more sleep. So I, I tried to do that. Um, second, I had these funny little exercises um, called pencil push-ups that I have to do. I'd hold a pencil, and I'd, I'd, if you're on the live stream, you're going to love this. I would just, whoop, I'd just like watch my finger all the way in and out, and I'd practice sort of focusing in and out, in, in and out. Um, but there was one other piece of advice that this eye doctor gave me. He said, you know, when you're reading over long periods of time, every like 20, 30 minutes, why don't you try like lifting up your eyes, looking across the room, um, you know, looking like 20 or 30 feet away from you or, or even like out a window and kind of it lets your eyes reset a little bit. Um, and so there's a lesson learned, right? I learned that, um, you know, it turns out looking right here and living right here um, is not very good for your vision all the time. And I think that's a pretty good principle for life in general. And what I mean by that uh, is, you know, it's, it's, I, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this pandemic, where we've been uh, this last year, um, where we've been in politics, in our society, as a church family. Um, this, this last year for me has made it very easy to do this, just right here, to live right here. Um, crises pile up, needs pile up. All of a sudden, um, all you're capable of doing is this. You're just looking at everything that's right here, right in front of you, asking, how am I going to get through this day, this week, this year? How's God going to provide? I think scripture, and I think this uh, scripture in particular, meets us in exactly this place. It gives us an encouragement to, in the midst of testing, 
lift up our eyes um, a little bit so that we can see something about God and about his provision for us in the midst of our need. And I think that this text um, teaches us two things, I mean more than two things, but at least two things about what we see when we lift up our eyes. And those two things are this. Uh, Number one, in our pain, we see his promise. In our pain, we see his promise. And number two, in his provision, we see God. In his provision, we see God. And if you're a little theologian here with us this morning, thank you for being here, getting up early. We appreciate you. Um, and if you're, if you're the sketching type, you want something to, to draw in your children's bulletin this morning, um, something you could draw is someone who's, who's spending all their time looking right here, focusing on what's really close to them and kind of missing important things that are a little bit farther away. See if you can draw something like that for me. Now, before we dive into this story, I do think we need a little bit of context when it comes to Isaac, right? We got Abraham and Isaac and the Lord uh, in this passage, but we have to understand what Isaac represents here as we dive into these verses. You see, for Abraham, Isaac is his son. He's his only son. He's his beloved son. He's the answer to the promise that God made Abraham years ago the greatest gift that he has ever received is his son Isaac. And we need to know that as we sort of dive into this text, read these, these very somber words. But in the grand scheme of things, also understand, um, because we, we're not going through a series in Genesis, this is sort of a one-off, understand that Isaac represents so much more than that if you're familiar with the book of Genesis. You see, this book, the story of the Bible, begins with God and humanity in perfect harmony, in perfect communion, enjoying mutual delight with one another in perfect relationship. And as God's image bearers, Adam and Eve, Scripture tells us, were blessed. And they were commanded to go forth to extend God's blessing, his dominion, his beauty, his glory, his justice to the ends of the earth as his image bearers. And even after the fall, even after they sin and rebel against God, they are promised that from the offspring of Eve, right, one day one of her offspring will rise up, crush the head of the serpent, defeat sin and death. And God's plan, his mission to bring blessing, his goodness, his justice, his mercy, his truth to the world, that plan hasn't been thwarted. It's still marching on. And in fact, when God first calls Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, there's echoes of this. This is what he says. He says that he will bless Abraham so that he will be a blessing and so that all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham and through his offspring, through a son that God will give to him. And this was even shown in the preceding chapter. If you know what Genesis 21 is about, we, we get this story about Hagar and Ishmael sort of being sent away from Abraham's family. Uh, Ishmael is, is sort of a more illegitimate son in this text. And so God says, look, I'm going to take care of Hagar and Ishmael. I'm going to take care of them. I'll, I'll do things with, with Ishmael. But Isaac is the son of the promise. It is through Isaac that this world is going to be blessed your descendants. It's Isaac is that son. So, so all the chips have sort of been shoved to the center of the table. We are all in on Isaac as we go to this text. It means there's tremendous pain for Abraham as he hears these words from the Lord, this, this testing request from God. But we know that in our pain, 
we see God's promise. So look with me at verse 1. We'll dive into this. After, after the events of the preceding chapter, we're told that God tested Abraham. You see that there? And, and this statement sort of sets the tone for us from the start, right? So we know that this is a test. We know um, that there's more happening here than maybe Abraham uh, sees. But of course, Abraham doesn't know this yet, all right? Um, but as we read, right, we, we might be prone to, as the text goes along, focus on Isaac's welfare. Oh, is he going to live? Is he going to die? What's going to happen to Isaac? Um, but what the text does for our posture in this text is it, it asks us to focus on Abraham. Is he going to be faithful or not? What's he going to do? This is a test. And so we see God call to Abraham by name, and Abraham adopts a listening posture. He says, here I am. He's ready to hear from the Lord as he has many times. And in verse 2, God tells him, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. If you look at this text in the Hebrew, it's really interesting. Uh, God's request actually is, please take your son. Um, you know how many times God says please with a command in Scripture? This does not happen very often. And so what we see here, um, one commentator suggests, is perhaps God really understands the magnitude of what he's asking Abraham to do. Please take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now, the word son uh, shows up something like 13 times in this text. If you're a little theologian, maybe go through the scripture text, see if you can find, circle all the, the times the word son shows up here. And I don't think that we're crazy to ask as we look at this, what's going on here? Um, many have objected to this text. Uh, the renowned uh, English atheist Richard Dawkins comments on this text saying, uh, God ordered Abraham to make a burnt offering of his longed-for son. Abraham built an altar, put firewood upon it, trussed Isaac up on top of the wood. His murdering knife was already in his hand when an angel dramatically intervened with the news of a last-minute change of plan. God was only joking, after all. He was tempting Abraham and testing his faith. And Dawkins says, a modern moralist cannot help but wonder how a child could ever recover from a psychological trauma like this. By the standards of modern morality, this disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense, I was only obeying orders. That's Richard Dawkins uh, in his book, The God Delusion. What can we say? as believers with this text and with these sorts of objections. I think, first of all, uh, we ought to um, have the boldness and the, the courageous faith to say, it's a legitimate question. What's happening in this text? And to treat it, you know, respectfully as a legitimate question. And, and it may be helpful not to just immediately brush it aside, to linger in this question a little bit. A good place to start for us as believers might be in you know, we might start by saying what, what this text is not about. It's not 
we know that God has forgotten his promise. He's already ratified his promise, repeated it multiple times in the scriptural text. He ratified it in chapter 15, promising to uphold both ends of his covenant to uh, Abraham. It's not that God is ignorant of how important Isaac is to Abraham. He knows this is his son, his only son. He knows that this is his beloved son. The text makes that clear. And I think also as Christians, we should adopt a posture of saying, you know, it's not that God doesn't have a purpose in mind. He does. And so as we go through this text, we should, we should keep these things in mind, even as we, we reckon with this scripture a little bit. God says, Abraham, take your only son, Isaac, your son, whose name means laughter, and go sacrifice him. And I would uh, forgive you if for a moment, at first glance, this story sounds like the beginning of a cruel joke. Could it be that God is merely a cynical, unkind, megalomaniacal God? That he simply doesn't love Abraham all that much? I think it's worth looking a little bit deeper to find out. I think it's worth diving into this text and inquiring what's happening here. So let's see if we can find out what God wants us to see and learn and know about him in this text. Look with me at verse 3. You know, we might be tempted to approach this text with a sort of uh, stoicism that the Bible simply doesn't call for. Um, you know, what, I'm, what I mean by this is we might be tempted to think, uh, well, God gave Abraham a command, and well, well golly, you know, Abraham was, was obedient, and he did what God said, and he passed to the test, and that's that. Uh, <laughs> but look with me at verse 3. It's possible that we see something of Abraham's humanness here. Because he seems genuinely shaken. Um, some commentators have noted that Abraham's actions seem really scattered. What does he do? He rises early in the morning. First thing he does is saddle the donkey. Then he gets the young men together. Then he sets about chopping some wood. And you'd think, why doesn't he chop the wood first? And then get people to, and then saddle the, you know. Like, it, the order's a little bit weird. And there's, there's perhaps, you know, zero percent stoicism here. This is a man who's filled with internal agony at the request that God has made of him. Nevertheless, in spite of that internal turmoil, that agony, we see that Abraham's clear response is faith and obedience. He does exactly what God asks. You know, another thing that we notice is that this passage, in many ways, Genesis 22, if you look at it as a whole, it sort of harkens back to all the, the major uh, turning points of Abraham's life. There's echoes of Abraham's life throughout this text. It's like the series finale of your favorite show when all the you know, characters come back and make a cameo. All the amazing ways that God and Abraham have interacted throughout his words so far are echoed here. For example, when God calls to Abraham in Genesis 12, he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And uh, God makes this call of Abraham. You know what Abraham's response is in verse 4 of Genesis 12? Text says, so he went. God says, go, leave behind, uh, you know, you see the, the parallels here in these verses? Instead of um, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, i.e. 
all that you hold dear? Here in chapter 22, God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, all that you hold dear. Go to the land that I will show you. Go to one of the mountains which I will show you. We get, um, we get Abraham's response here in this text in chapter 22. It says he rose early, he got everything prepared, and he went. And he went to that place. Decades have passed since that first call. But Abraham is still, to this moment, faithful. He's being obedient. And we can only wonder what's going through Abraham's mind on the journey, right? He had plenty of time to think about this. It's a three-day journey. But I venture to, to say that he's fixing his eyes on God's promise. This man is being faithful despite multiple opportunities to get back. You notice that if you look at verse 6, verse 8, we get that sort of, so they went language repeated multiple times in this text. And it's this, this sort of picture of like, there's, there's a waiting and a return to obedience. There's this constant refrain, so they went, so they went. Abraham, every step of the way, is fixing his eyes on God's promises, and he's being obedient. He's following in faith. God's promise that Abraham would have a child in his old age, his promise that this child would become a great nation, his promised assurance that Isaac is this child. Maybe that's what's in Abraham's mind when it says he lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. The language actually evokes um, the story of Hagar in the previous chapter. She's stuck in the wilderness with her son Ishmael. She lifts up her eyes at the point of like, death and she sees a well. God's deliverance, his provision. So maybe, you know, Abraham's lifting up his eyes and he's wondering, what's he going to see? Will God deliver? Will God provide? He sees the place from afar. He continues on. Perhaps it's God's promise that is in the back of Abraham's mind when he tells his young men, we will come again to you in verse 5. Maybe he's clinging to God's promises. But at any rate, the story intensifies. The place is in view. Abraham lays the wood for the offering on his son, probably because the terrain doesn't allow for donkeys anymore, and they set off again. Now, if um, you've got the ESV uh, translation, you see um, Isaac is, according to the Bible, a boy. The Hebrew word being used here is na'ar, which can mean a boy or a young man. Um, in Genesis 21, the previous chapter, we're told that Ishmael, at about 14 years of age, is a na'ar. A little bit later in the book of Genesis, we'll be told that Joseph, at the age of 17, is a na'ar. So this gives you an idea of, of maybe the age that Isaac is uh, in this text. It gives you an idea of how this word gets employed in Scripture. We don't know exactly how old he is, but you get the point. He's certainly old enough to carry a large load of wood up a mountain, and he's old enough to analyze the situation and ask his father a very uncomfortable question. You see it there in verse 7? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? This is a heartfelt moment between father and son. At the beginning of the passage, God has addressed Abraham by his name, which means father of many. God called out to Abraham said, Abraham. Abraham responds, here I am. Now Isaac addresses Abraham with the only name that he knows for him, my father. And Abraham responds, here I am, my son. 
It's such a tender question from a trusting son, and you almost feel Abraham's heart breaking as he looks at his son, his only son, who he loves, and says, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. It's a tender question. It's a tender answer. And maybe in this moment, reality sinks in for Isaac. We don't know. We're not told what his reaction is, but we know it's either total trust or total obedience to his father, even as Abraham moving on, we see has total trust and total obedience towards his God. And they trudge on, and they do so together. The preparations made, the altar assembled, Isaac bound, Abraham reaches out his hand, he takes the knife to slaughter his son, and there's no ambiguity in the text, this is the killing moment. And here we reach the turning point of the text. The question up to this point in the text is, uh, will Abraham be faithful? And he has been faithful. He's kept his eyes fixed on God's promises. He's willing to be obedient to God's commands. And the secondary question of the text is, what will God do? Will God provide? Will God intervene? And he does. He intervenes. He provides. And in his provision, we see God. So look with me at verse 11. All this suspense and dread comes to a screeching halt as the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham. So at the beginning of the text, God calls his name once, and now he calls it twice. Abraham! Abraham! There's an urgency to it. It's the first time that God's covenant name, the Lord, is used in our passage The same God who made promises to Abraham is the God who intervenes to deliver on those promises to keep his covenant. And God says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. And here's the reason why. For now I know that you fear God. Abraham has demonstrated through his faith that he sees God rightly, that he trusts God rightly. And how has he demonstrated this? Because God has seen that Abraham has not withheld, he has not spared, he has not held back his son, his only son, from him. And when, we, when God says, now I know, we're not getting this picture that, you know, God didn't know that Abraham had faith before. God knows all things. He sees the end from the beginning. He holds the universe in his hands. Knowledge is not a problem for him. And we know Usain Bolt is the fastest sprinter on the planet, but it's not because we looked at him and said, wow, he looks fast. It's not because, you know, we did an in-depth analysis of, like, his muscle fibers, and we're like, he is capable of this time in the 100 meters. It's not because, as a child, uh, we heard stories that he won a lot of races. It's because he went to the Olympics, and he raced in the 100 meters. There was a test, a challenge, a gauntlet laid down, and he crushed, he smashed the world record. That's why we know he's the fastest sprinter on the planet. At some point, the test is required. In verse 13, now that the test is complete, Abraham lifts his eyes once more, and he sees a ram. And Abraham offers that ram in place of his son, and the clear message here is that the Lord has provided. And so, verse 14, Abraham names the place with the exact words he had said to his son, the Lord will provide, with one tiny difference. And now Abraham uses God's covenant promise-keeping name, the Lord will provide. And of course, that's what happens. The Lord shows up. He provides. Abraham sees him intervene. 
And the Hebrew word in this passage uh, for provide is the word ra'ah, which normally we translate as to see. As in earlier in this passage, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he ra'ahed the place from afar. In verse 8, when Abraham's talking to Isaac, he says God will ra'ah for himself the lamb. He will see for himself the lamb, or, or God will see to it. And it's an appropriate uh, way of translating that Hebrew word in, in these verses to say provide. We're not exactly unfamiliar with this, this idiomatic construction, right? Our word to see has a pretty broad range in English. When Nikki, our meal coordinator, puts together these amazing fellowship meals that we all miss so much, she sees to it that we all get fed. She provides food for us. The word uh, provide in English actually has roots in, in a Latin word meaning to, to see beforehand. Again in verse 14, we get this interesting phrase, this sort of proverb that's passed down through generations, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. But if you have an ESV Bible with you in the pew today, you'll see that this verse is probably marked with a little footnote saying that an alternate translation could be, on the mount of the Lord, he will be seen. And grammatically, because it's a reflexive verb, and I'm getting really nerdy on you now, but, but this is probably a better translation, on the mount of the Lord, he will be seen. This is why you bring your Bibles to church, by the way, so you can like, see all this cool stuff. Um, so my translation of this verse is, so Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, he will be seen. But in Hebrew, it's the same word. It's wordplay. The point is this. There seems to be some sort of important link between God's provision and seeing him. Now we believe in what we call the doctrine of providence. This means that uh, we believe that all things are held and sustained and offered to us not by chance but by God's fatherly hand. And we're not told that what that means is God gives us everything that we want. That's not providence. We are told that God will provide for us everything that we need. And that in our moment of greatest need, we will see him. And seeing him, we will be transformed. The reformer John Calvin put it this way. He said, God not only looks upon those who are his, but he also makes his help manifest, visible to them, so that in turn he may be seen by them. And so he sort of pictures this as, as a tree where the trunk of this tree is that God provides. He meets our needs. But the branches out from that tree, the result of that, of that truth is that we see him. We see him. And so at some point in the middle of offering up this ram in verses 15 through 18, the Lord calls to Abraham again, and he repeats many of the covenant promises he has made in chapters 12 and 15 and 16 throughout Abraham's life. But they're actually intensified uh, over the course of Abraham's life, culminating here. God doesn't just say, I will bless you, like he said in Genesis 12. He says, I will surely bless you. The verb is repeated in Hebrew, I will surely multiply your offspring like the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore. In Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth will indeed be blessed. And God's cosmic redemptive plan to bring his blessing, his character, his love, his justice to the world marches on. 
In verse 19, we get the happiest of endings, right? Um, The test completed, the promises secured Abraham and his son and the young men, the attendants that waited for him. They head back to Beersheba just as they had come. What can we say about this story? What What can we take away from it? Well, because of this story, Abraham in the New Testament is held forth for us as an example of faith. Hebrews 11, your New Testament reading this morning, looks back to this story and says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. But Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham's faith was not without cost, right? Imagine the pain, the agony that Abraham experiences in this text, but we we learn from Scripture that in his pain, Abraham fixes his eyes on God's promise. And this is a lesson, I think, for us. Sometimes you lift your eyes and you see Mount Moriah off in the distance, and sometimes you lift your eyes and you see a ram. But notice that for Abraham, whatever he sees when he lifts his eyes... The call to press on, to continue on, even though you don't know how God's going to provide, or the call that God has provided, Abraham continues to move in concert with God's commands in perfect obedience while setting his eyes on God's provision and his promises. And for Abraham, faith and obedience go hand in hand. And in the book of James... We learn that works, this sort of obedience is essential to faith. And, and James invokes this story to make this claim. We, we look at this story and we, we often wonder, oh, is it going to end in the death of Isaac? Um, but James, strangely, asks us to consider, oh, you want to see something that's really dead? Go find someone who claims to have faith, but they don't have works. Go find someone who claims to believe in the promises of the Lord, but they're not willing to follow him. That's a faith that's dead. And Abraham reveals here in this text that he really genuinely trusts the promises of God. It's not a wishy-washy sort of faith, but it's a faith that's backed up by deeds. I'll reiterate, it's not some stoic, fatalistic faith either. Abraham's hurting in this passage. We shouldn't pretend that obedience is easy or emotionless, or that it doesn't sometimes, uh, for you and me, uh, involve crying out to God and asking him why from time to time. But notice that on multiple occasions, Abraham lifts up his eyes. One time he sees the place ahead of him and he obediently continues on. Another time he looks up, he sees God's deliverance, his provision, but he keeps looking up. He keeps trusting. So the point of being confident that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, if that's what it would take. And we're told that in this, Abraham is justified, that his faith is shown to be true and real. It's it's a lesson for us about what faith is, right? In our pain, we look to God's promise. So indeed, right, we look to Abraham as an example of faith. And I could just wrap it up here and, and, and say, see, Abraham's good. Be like Abraham. We could all go home. Um, But I think think there's more here. I think there's a little bit more going on in this passage that we need to see, right? Because in God's provision, we see something about him. 
in God's provision, we see him. And that is, um, throughout this story, we're not just being shown cool things about Abraham, this man of faith. I think that we're learning a little something about God. Think back to what I said at the beginning as we considered what's happening in this text, right? How could God ask Abraham to do something like this? How sick does he have to be to make this sort of request of Abraham to put him and, for that matter, Isaac through this experience? And if if we just had this story, a sort of cosmic test and a peaceful resolution, knowing that God provides in the end, maybe that would be enough, right? Maybe it would be enough to say, Look, uh, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We don't always know the why behind why God does things. But that doesn't mean we can't trust him. And maybe, you know, I think that is good enough. But I also want to tell you this isn't the end of the book. Genesis is just the, the prologue of God's story that he's writing for redemptive history for the blessing of the world. You see, centuries later, the Israelites coming out of Egypt, they would be told this story as they were formed into a a new nation, a priesthood of believers to bless the entire world. And eventually their king, King Solomon, would build a temple in Jerusalem at a place they called Mount Moriah. Whether it's literally the same mountain that Centuries earlier, Abraham and Isaac had once walked up. That's not really the point. The point is that when they put the temple up, the Israelites were saying something very particular. They saw a connection when they built the temple. When we come to the temple, we come to see God provide. We come to meet with him on the mount of the Lord. He will be seen. Centuries after the temple was built, One day, a a man would approach Jerusalem with firm resolve, but this is no ordinary man. This man's name was Jesus. A man who at his baptism and transfiguration, a voice from heaven had called out, this is my beloved son. Jesus, the son of God, who would say of himself in John 3, for God so loved the world, for God, he, he, he loved this world so much that he gave his only begotten son in order that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. This son of God, Jesus, who tells us in John 14, if anyone has seen me, he has seen the father. So centuries after Isaac lived and died, Jesus, the son of God, carries the wood for his own execution up a mountain, knowing exactly what awaits him. And they crucified him there, and they mocked him, and they spit upon him, and they scorned him. And now the promises of redemption hinge on Jesus, but not in his being delivered from this hour. Promises hinge on him remaining and bearing the full weight of God's wrath poured out. And he took that cup from his father. He accepted that cup from his father with perfect obedience and perfect trust. And he drank it down to the very last drop. No voice from heaven intervened. The hand of wrath was not stayed. Jesus offered up his life willfully, faithfully, perfectly for you. What do we see? When we look at God in this test of Abraham, right? Because we were initially told to look for 
a way to see Abraham rightly, right? This is a test. Is he a faithful person or not? And he's tested, and what he really is, is revealed. But in Christ, this, this story grows larger. It becomes a story about seeing God rightly. Was God just playing with Abraham? Was this just a cruel joke? No. God was showing us in this story the high cost of his redemption and the immeasurable extent of his love. So Romans 8 speaks to us of a God who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all. And in saying that to us, Romans 8 asks us to lift up our eyes and meditate on this simple truth. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, this pandemic has raised all sorts of questions for so many of us. Things that we long for, things that we need. Trials have emerged and trials that we were already dealing with have been exacerbated. Some of you have lost jobs. Some of you have lost loved ones, friends. For some of you, the losses um, of this last year feel very intangible, but they're felt so acutely just the same. Whatever's got your vision stuck right here. If you come in this morning and all you see is the crisis, all you see is what's hard, all you ask is, will God get us through? God meets you in this place. On the mount of the Lord, he will be seen. Jesus offered his life. He suffered and died. He rose again, defeating sin and death once and for all. And in so doing, he built his church. He built his church to be the offspring of Abraham in this world, to extend the blessings of God into this world. And you look at verse 17 of this text in Genesis 22, and you see something strange. You see something like what Jesus said to his church, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. If you're here this morning, you're not a believer God wants you to see in this text that there can be more to your life than just living right here. And he wants you to see that he has provided the lamb. A lamb who suffered for you, who rose for you into exalted glory. The suffering servant made a cosmic king. And there is no hope apart from that lamb. You can live your whole life offering up little sacrifices in an attempt to make peace with God or your neighbor or yourself the whole time not realizing that what God demands from you, what our holy, perfect God demands from you is perfection. And you cannot bridge that gap on your own with your own works, with your own efforts. But if you lift your eyes and you look to the perfect sacrifice God has provided, you will see the free gift of Jesus Christ. And there you can find true peace, true joy, a joy that surpasses all understanding. And those things can be true of you today. You put your faith in Christ. If you're here this morning and you are a believer, don't you dare forget these things. But take something away uh, today about God's provision for you. Don't go back to just living like this. It's so easy to spend all of our time asking, how's God going to provide? How's God going to meet my next need? How are we going to make it through? Look at me. He has provided all that you need in Christ. And he is with you in every test 
and every trial that you endure. We're trying to teach our students a little bit about prayer this semester. We're going through the Lord's Prayer um, in order to do that. And one of the things that we're trying to emphasize as we look at the Lord's Prayer is how much the Lord's Prayer helps us to not do this, to actually lift up our eyes and see all that God is doing. Praying for things, you know, among other things, God's kingdom to be brought into this world. God's will to be done and not our own. You know, we, um, we get this encouragement from Jesus that God is going to work and accomplish amazing and critical things in this world, whether we're on board or not. But if you lift up your eyes, if you lift up your eyes, you'll get to see him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified, not just in our receiving of it this morning, God, but in our putting it into practice this week, tomorrow, Monday morning. God, would you give us things to take home today, to chew on and to meditate on from your word? And would you continue to build up your church, Lord? We love you, God, and we thank you so much for this morning. Praying in Jesus' name, amen.